This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our favorite segment as it relates to music. Every once in a while, every other day or so, whenever it hits Jesse, we have a This Day in Music History. I think it's actually when there's enough to cover. Some days there's nothing, and then some days, well, well, you're about to hear, some days there's a whole lot of things that happen in music history. And so with that, our This Day in Music History segment Brought to us by Jesse. This day in music history, 1932, Lalo Schifrin, the Argentine composer who wrote the classic theme from Mission Impossible, is born in Buenos Aires. He received four Grammy Awards and six Oscar nominations. Associated with the jazz music genre, Schifrin is also noted for work with Clint Eastwood in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in the Dirty Harry films. And in 1948, the Columbia label announced its new technological breakthrough, a long-playing vinyl phonograph record that can hold up to 23 minutes of music on one side. The purpose of this record is to demonstrate the Columbia Double Disc Record. Music on both sides, the different selection on each side. Two records at a few cents above the price of one. They may be played on any disc machine, the Columbia Graphophone or the Victor Talking Machine. And they give you double value for your money, plain as daylight. Vinyl records are projected to sell 40 million units in 2017, with sales nearing the $1 billion benchmark for the first time in this millennium. This impressive milestone has been untouched since the peak of the industry in the 1980s. And on this day in music history, 1955, Johnny Cash releases Cry, Cry, Cry. Everybody knows where you go when the sun goes down. I think you only live to see the lights of town. I wasted my time when I would try, try, try. Cause when the lights have lost their glow, you cry, cry, cry. The early success of the song led to a featured spot on the Louisiana Hayride Tour and kicked off the career of Johnny Cash in the process. The song sold over 100,000 copies in the southern states alone. Cash then began a tour with Elvis Presley soon after its release. In 1954, before the release of the song, Johnny Cash had signed with Sun Records after he came home from serving in the United States Air Force. During that time, he wrote the song Hey Porter, which was met with little excitement from the executives at his record label. He was then told to come back with a song that Sun Records owner Sam Phillips would be able to sell. Cash went home and wrote the song Cry 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 overnight and came back and performed it to Phillips the following day. So your sugar daddies will all be gone. You wake up some cold day and find you're alone. You'll call for me, but I'm gonna tell you bye, bye, bye. When I turn around and walk away, you'll cry, cry, cry. You're gonna cry, 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 and you cry alone. When everyone's forgotten and you're left on your own, you're gonna cry, cry, cry. The song was then coupled with Hey Porter and released as the B-side of the record. And in 1966, the Beatles record She Said, She Said. She said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. And she's making me feel like I'll never belong. Song inspired by a party where Peter Fonda, John Lennon, Ringo Starr, and George Harrison were taking acid. Paul McCartney, who didn't partake at the party, finds himself frozen out of the recording session and leaves. So George Harrison plays bass on the track. Like 
And on this day in music history, 1970, Who guitarist Pete Townsend, while waiting for his flight at the airport in Memphis, Tennessee, likens the band's latest album, Tommy, to an atomic bomb, causing officials who misheard the remark to search the facilities for a real bomb. And in 1975, Captain and Tennille's Love Will Keep Us Together hits number one for the first time of four weeks. Love will keep us together. In the United States, it was the best-selling single of 1975 and became a gold record and also won the Grammy for Record of the Year in February of 1976. And in 2001, bluesman John Lee Hooker dies of natural causes at the age of 83. The son of a sharecropper, he rose to prominence performing an electric guitar-style adaptation of the Delta Blues. Boom, 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 boom Gonna shoot you right down At all your feet Take you home with me Put you in my house Boom, 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 boom Hooker often incorporated other elements, including talking blues and early North Mississippi hill country blues. He spent the last years of his life in Long Beach, California, and in 1997, he opened a nightclub in San Francisco's Fillmore District called John Lee Hooker's Boom Boom Room after one of his hit songs. And that's This Day in Music History for Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards.
This is Our American Stories, and we share a lot of stories here about the extraordinary work and lives of musicians, actors, entrepreneurs, athletes, you name it. But it's not an accident that there are so many great stories coming out of our single country. What is it about this country that lets people flourish? Well, we're about to talk about that and the big piece of this puzzle. On this day in history in 1788, our United States Constitution was ratified. More than geography, technology, or where our citizens originally came from, this document has shaped our nation. Why did the Founding Fathers create it, and why does it matter today? Let's first set the scene. We had won the Revolutionary War and the colonies were freed from the British Empire. But how would these diverse states interact with each other and the rest of the world? The first American Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, were weak. And in practical terms, nothing got done. Something had to be done, and the Founding Fathers knew that they were struggling with questions of governance that go back to the earliest of human communities. And so, as we often do, we turn to Hillsdale College to learn more about this chaotic time in our history. Here's Hillsdale College's president, Dr. Larry Arn, asking the most basic question, the most basic question on the minds of Americans then and today. Is self-government possible? All of human history, all the kings and monarchs and aristocracy of history had thought, no, it can't be done. Aristotle himself is very skeptical. He's not opposed, but he's skeptical about democracy, the rule of the many. And so the founders are aware this is a very hard thing to do. Indeed, never done in history for a long time before. Indeed. Dr. Arne dives deeper into the questions of government power. Because as the founders knew, a government with too much power was tended toward despotism. And a government with too little power, well, we already had that under the Articles of Confederation. The problem with government, the government is the solution to a problem, right? The necessary solution to a problem, and that is us. Lord knows what we might do without laws. We would be not unlikely to take each other's stuff, for example. But there's a problem with government. That's us too. So Madison wrote, what is government but the profoundest of all commentaries on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be needed. If angels were to govern men, neither internal nor external controls on the government would be necessary. The founders tried to manage these competing pressures through checks and balances written into the United States Constitution. But what does that word even mean? Here's Dr. Arne defining the word constitution and elaborating on this topic. To set a thing up firmly in place, it's actually like the word for statue. Just think of this particular problem. If you're going to have more than one person make the law, you're going to have to have a constitution to describe how that's done. Or else you're going to have wars all the time about who gets to make the law. The constitution is an attempt to organize a form of government that is as close as possible to what human beings are like and what they need. What they're like is that they need and they naturally make laws, and what they need is those laws to be consistently fair and protect them and also restrain them from harming one another. And since it's true that both the thing that needs protecting And the danger to it is the same thing. 
then you have to have some method of both assembling and granting power and of restraining power. And our Constitution is the best at that in all of history, and the explanations of it by the people who wrote it are the most profound explanations of that kind in all of human history. Indeed. So when you hear about this old document, know that we've got the oldest Constitution for a reason. It's the best. And when you hear people referring to South Africa's Constitution, which is new, well, we'll see how long South Africa lasts under a Constitution that has all kinds of rights and privileges, but very few restraining limits on government itself. So how exactly did the founders address self-governance through the Constitution? It is the only law really ever passed directly by the people of the United States. And so the people picked the Constitution. And if you think, as I think, that no human being has the right by nature to govern any other human being without the consent of the, of the governed, then, of course, you have to think that the majority has to approve the government all the time. But in, you don't want the majority tampering with the Constitution all the time. And so they invented a process for the people to pass the Constitution more or less directly, and then that process passed away and doesn't exist anymore. As someone who has spent an awful lot of time studying and teaching the Constitution, Dr. Arn has often had to address one question head on. Why should we listen to this old thing, right? Written for the time of the horse and buggy. Serious people try to figure out what's right, what fits. If there's a thing that is not susceptible of change, we still are born in a certain way, and then we age, you know, and eventually we die. And that happens at a pace that's similar for all of us, right? If we're going to remain human beings, then my argument is we should strive to govern ourselves in the way indicated by the Constitution of the United States. It is fit for things like us. And since Dr. Arne is a college president surrounded by feisty undergrads, some of whom are sitting right here in our studio, he also makes a practical argument for taking the Constitution seriously one particularly directed at young folks who may not even know anything about the American system. All you have to do is go and look at any place where the law cannot be trusted. You don't want to live anywhere like that. Uh, you want to live instead in a place where your efforts are much less, as a percentage, dominated by the job of just protecting yourself. Young people long for this, right? to use their growing powers to, to make for themselves a significant life. That's what you want, and you need good laws for that. This idea that may be in your mind that you can, if you don't like the place where you can go, you can move somewhere else, that's a fact, by the way, among the, the, the countries that still enjoy the rule of law. In the other countries, not at all. It's so true, and good luck trying to move in some of these places as well. And Dr. Arn's classroom, by the way, is a remarkable place to be. I was just talking to some of our interns here, and every single student at Hillsdale wants into Dr. Arn's class. He still teaches one. I've never seen or had a better teacher in my life. And a few years ago, Dr. Arn invited me to sit down and take a class. 
And there I was with 20 young people, probably 21, 22 years old. Here I am, a graduate of a fancy law school, the University of Virginia. And I was given some reading materials, which, of course, I blew off because I thought I was a pretty smart guy. And so the classroom starts, and Dr. Arnn says, Mr. Habib, a quick question. What problem was the Constitution trying to solve, and how did it solve it? You've got two minutes. And I had not done my work, and I was not ready, and so I paused for a second, and I improvised, and I did a pretty rotten job. And then he said, nice job, Mr. Habib. I'm lucky you're not on a grading curve right now. And then he calls some other student, and in two minutes, the student said something like this, oh, that's easy, sir. It was trying to solve the problem of the Articles Confederation. It was weak. They wanted more centralized power, but not too much. And so they came up with Articles 1, 2, and 3 and dispersed power, not giving the executive branch, the legislation, legislative branch, or the judiciary too much power. And by the way, we're still arguing about who should have more power to this day. We're still having the same arguments. Is it the legislative branch? Is it the Supreme Court? Is it the executive branch? And we're still arguing today about where power should sit. She had one other thing to say, though. And the Tenth Amendment reserved the rights to the states and the power to the states. And always, when the federal government can't solve the problem, the states can. And in the end, sir, as you've taught us, gridlock is not bad. Gridlock was what the Constitution was dedicated to. It's going to be hard to get all three of those branches on the same page. So there you have it, our version of the Constitution through Dr. Larry Arn. And by the way, Dr. Arn's Constitution 101 course, you can find at hillsdale.edu. It's free. It's for everyone. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. And it's not just that course. They've got all kinds of courses, 16 in total, 10 hours long. If you want to learn about life, about art, about literature, there is no finer place to go, no finer place to send a child They'll grow up to be a man or woman when they're done there. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Antonin Scalia, Justice Scalia. He's departed, but his words haven't. They're available on YouTube. No one speaks better about our exceptional Constitution than Justice Antonin Scalia. We'll hear from him from the grave after these commercial messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. On this day in history, in 1788, the United States Constitution was ratified. And we just heard from Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, about what the founders were thinking about when they drafted the Constitution and why we should respect and study that document today. Dr. Arn is in good company among those who have dedicated their lives to the study and conservation of the Constitution. In 2011, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia gave a tremendous talk to the Senate Judiciary Committee about the Constitution and American exceptionalism. He started off by identifying a hole in our education system. I speak uh, to students, especially law students, but also college students and even high school students, quite frequently about the Constitution, uh, because I feel that we're, we're, we're not teaching it very well. Um, 
I, sp I speak to law students from the, the best law schools, people presumably especially interested in the law, and I ask them, how many of you have read the Federalist Papers? And, and, well, a lot of hands will go out. No, not just number 48 and the big ones. How many of you have read the Federalist Papers, cover to cover? Never more than about 5%. And that, that is very sad. I mean, if, especially if you're interested in the Constitution. Here's a document that says what the framers of it thought they were doing. It, it's such a, a profound exposition of political science that it is studied in, in political science courses in Europe. And yet we, we have raised a generation of Americans who are not familiar with it. Scalia then continues by asking an obvious question with a not necessarily obvious answer. So when, when I speak to these groups, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if, if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press, big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over, the Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. And that's so true. It's the part that's not taught. It's the separation of powers. Because, again, there's not a country in the world that doesn't have a list of Bill, a bill of Rights. Look at Venezuela. The Middle East countries have Bill of Rights. It's ridiculous. There are no rights at all. So if lists of rights can be empty promises, what does matter? The real key to... Uh the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate 
bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a, a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. A and when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary. Because the Europeans don't even try to divide the, the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and, the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick them out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at the system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house, sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party, it passes both, and then this president who has a veto power vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. It is gridlock. And that sounds terrible, right? Gridlock? All that gridlock? Well, plenty of folks think that gridlock is awful, but not Scalia. They talk about a dysfunctional government be, be, because there's disagreement. And, 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 they, and the framers would have said, yes, that's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power. Because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate, he said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities. The main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair, it doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into, this, into this complex system. So Americans should, uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. Uh, it's, it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will, will be good legislation. Learn to love the gridlock. And that's what we come away with as we celebrate the ratification of the Constitution. It was all about dispersal of power, checks on power. And then, of course, the Bill of Rights, as we all know, was thrown in at the end to get this whole thing well signed up. And by the way, they're really important, the Bill of Rights. But again, how do we enforce the Bill of Rights without the structure? without a functioning government. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we've spent some time today talking about the Constitution because on this day in history, in 1788, the U.S. Constitution was ratified. And again, if you want to hear more about the Constitution, go to hillsdale.edu. Their Constitution 101 course is just mesmerizing. From beginning to end, you'll learn everything you'd ever wanted to know. And you don't have to go to Hillsdale to take these great Hillsdale courses. And we have quite a few of our Hillsdale interns in here, and they've helped with this. And Dr. Arn, thanks for all you've done supporting this show and supporting the storytelling here. Uh, we're going to try and honor you and honor the traditions at Hillsdale. 
And when we come back, more stories here on Our American Stories. And when you want to hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've got podcasts. We've got everything from sports to art. And by the way, listen to the Jaws hour we just did. It was terrific. And you'll hear from Steven Spielberg. And you'll hear from the producers. And, of course, the man who wrote the book, Peter Benchley. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Leonard Skinner, and Greg here. I said, who is this again? And, Len- and he said, I know every Leonard Skinner song, and I also know every Boston song. And I thought, wow, that's something to brag about. Um, but that, that is, I guess, in some strange way. Um, but we're playing that because, well, our friend Heidi Mitchell over at the Wall Street Journal, who does the Burning Question column, well, this week's Burning Question was, what makes some people sweat more than others? And I have a dear friend who has a bunch of boys, and they're all ball-playing age, like 10 to 18. And my goodness, you walk into that pantry where they put all their cleats, and it, the, the, we should bottle that and drop it on terrorists because it, it is it is. I'm rancid. going to be sick. <laughs> so, Heidi, we're, we're, we're so happy to have you again on this burning question. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm just thinking about my 10-year-old socks now. Ooh, ooh, that smell. It's brutal, is it? It's brutal. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about, hey, what, what led you to this one this week? What was the water cooler discussion? How did you get to this one? Um, you know, so I think someone was complaining about, um, I know what it was. We were, I was coming out of a concert with a friend, and her boyfriend was drenched, and it was winter, it was still cool. Well, it still is winter here in New York, and uh, it was. And he, I was like, "Why are you sweating?" <laughs> and he's like, "I just sweat all the time. I'm always sweaty. I don't know why." And so that that led to, hmm, I don't sweat that much. Yeah. Not even at the gym that much. Right, and that that'll do it. And by the way, you know, I was always thinking about all these different Seinfeld episodes: the close talker, the the bubble boy. But there was never one on the heavy sweater. I was There's really. Everyone, you're right. No, and I always remember Samurai. Do you remember Samurai? Where, where Samurai Taylor, Samurai Butcher? Remember John Belushi? Every week he would come out with a sword, and he'd have a different job. And the solution was always to take out the sword and chop something in half. I, he we, was always sweating. Always sweat. He was always sweating. I had a waiter one night, and he was really sweating, and you could tell that this was not meant for him. And I thought, what? What if there was a sweaty guy that you followed around from job to job, and every single job he took, he was so sweaty there was no way it was going to work out. So we're talking about your friend who's obviously a, a real sweater, what, what, what did you learn about sweating? A, I, I would think first, Tidy, sweating is important, right? I mean, it serves a biological function. Right. I mean, so pretty much everything, when we start these columns, I always look at them from a kind of evolutionary perspective. And, you know, so your body has evolved so that if it's too hot, you sweat, and that cooling, that, that 
evaporation process. So the water comes out of you, and as it evaporates, it, it feels cooler. You just it lowers your core temperature. So, you know, your body has evolved to do it. Of course, when you, when you sweat, you're also sweating out some electrolytes and some stuff that your body, salts and stuff that your body needs. So that's why, you know, there's lots and lots of marketplace out there for, um, for drinks that claim to rehydrate you with those electrolytes and stuff. But usually typical food can help you. Typical food and beverage can help you get your rehydrated. But it's also, it also interestingly, um, it hydrates your skin, too, because it kind of locks in the moisture. So there's all good things with sweating. And, and, and so what did you learn? Why, why is it that some people do sweat more than others? And by the way, why do we sometimes, like I know myself, I, I'm not a heavy sweater, but every once in a while in certain contexts, especially before giving a, a speech in a large public gathering, I will really start to get the sweats. And then I've got to sit down, like relax, and then it goes away. But that's right. the one. And I'll so, sweat. I can't stop it. It's, so actually, it's, it's interesting because there's two different kinds of sweating. So there's the kind of sweating that's from, you know, elevating your heart rate from, from being active. And then there's something that's called emotional sweating, which is what you're talking about. And it's nervousness usually tips it off. And basically, your, your body is just going into, you're, you're scared, right? You're nervous to go on stage. And so you go into this fight or flight mode. And um, sweating it out is, is just one of the responses that your brain does. It's not totally understood. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's, I guess it, you know, part of what, you know, your, your, your heart rate gets boosted, adrenaline starts flowing. And so some people will sweat. I'm not one of those people, but I do get nervous, but I don't sweat. So yeah, it's like, and, and then people that really sweat, excessive sweaters, people with something called hyperhidrosis, and there are whole um, university programs devoted to this and, and, and centers devoted to this. That's about one to 3% of the population. And they, they just sweat. They just sweat from everything. They sweat sitting on their couch. And that's just, not, it's not normal. So if you're feeling that, you should talk to your doctor. No, that's not. And you did talk to, what I love, Heidi, is that you actually talk to doctors who do this stuff. And you talk to a doctor named Dr. Harmeek J. Sukusian. Sukasian. <laughs> and he's at the Cedar sinai Hyperhidrosis Clinical uh, Center. And he's a team leader, which means there are people who, as you just said, sit on a couch, listen to classical music, and sweat. And my goodness, this has got to be a problem at a minimum for your love life. I know. And, you know, the sad thing is that there isn't, they don't really know why people have this. It's like he, they think it's a miswiring of, you know, something in your brain that um, these, these gland clusters just get overactivated by just a little, little bit of stimulation. It could be like a tiny rise in the temperature. And you just, if once that, he says, once that faucet's open, you just can't shut it down. And they're just not, not totally sure. But he said he gave some, some examples of, like, you know, kids that couldn't get through a test because they were smudging their, their papers as they were writing it out. Um, they were sweating so much during these tests. Um, or people that just are embarrassed to, to go out or can't buy nice clothes because they sweat through them and stain them. Um, and it can, be, it can be socially inhibiting. Oh, it, it can be a killer. I had one of my dearest friends, he had that anxiety sweat when it came to dating. And it just, it, oh. it didn't end well for him. And yeah. to this day, I mean, he is still a single guy and he just thinks oh. girls don't like him. And they do, but they just, he, they, he can't stop it. He's gone to doctors. There's, he's tried everything in his life and he, he can't do it. They and, do have Botox now that is one of the things that seems to work. 
Um, he's, you know, that's sort of a, and then they have a, a further thing where they go Botox, which paralyzes those um, glands. Right. And then the next thing you can do is um, he does this surgery and he says it's like it does a great job, but it's the last, last, last resort. Effort. Yeah. 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 And in fact, um, my, my buddy had pondered that, but he's just one of those guys who goes, I'm just not doing that. I'm just yeah. not doing that. I'm going, well, whatever. I mean, the alternative is you're going to be alone the rest of your life. Aww, no, that's rough. Guy. So let's, let's talk about what else might cause sweating. I mean, for, for, for those of us who can maybe impact it one way or the other on at least the periphery, medications, well, so, food choices, yeah. talk about those things. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's tons of them. I mean, the list is super, super long about what can increase your sweating, um, like from insulin or any kind of antidepressant, even even aspirin. Of course, you know, the sort of experience, caffeine, alcohol, they can boost your heart rate, so that can boost your core temperature. Of course, spicy foods, for some people, it's just, this, it's just capsicum. It's just the stuff, the chemical that's in the spicy peppers that can trigger, it, it increases your core temperature. So anything that will increase your core temperature can um, can get you to just, just, again, that faucet gets turned on and it just can't get turned off. But what's super interesting, I thought, um, that I learned from, from Dr. Sukasian is that um, less fit people, it's like a lot about your fitness level. So studies show that less fit people, they, they sweat more when they go to the gym um, because their bodies are really trying to cool down more. Right. But, but you see fit people sweating a lot too because their bodies are so efficient that their body is starting to cool down right away. It knows that it's got to get itself back to regular, to be healthy, to get its core temperature back down to a regular 98.6. And so they start sweating straight away. So, so fit people will start sweating sooner, but less fit people will sweat more, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And tell us this, for our audience listening, what can we do to reduce our sweat? Are there things we can do? Um, of course. So there's lots that you can do. The first, the easiest thing you can do is to wear natural fabrics. Um, you know, if you look at your label, probably everything you own is, is a blend. So try and stick to cottons and, and wools, and they just let you breathe more, right? So you're not inhibiting um, your body, those glands that are going to sweat. And then, um, and then you can get uh, a higher aluminum uh, antiperspirant, and you can even put that on your hands. Some people use it on their hands or like on their necks or the bottoms of their feet for mm-hmm. your stinky, your friend's stinky um, teenagers. Yep. Um, and that can, that can, that aluminum content, it actually kind of damages the cells. Um, some people are afraid of it because of t- uh, p- potential ties to some forms of cancer, but um, it's a sketchy link in. So, uh, but uh, but anyway, if you if you're a big sweater, um, you know you might that is certainly something to consider. And then if that you can go one step further and get an antiperspirant from your dermatologist that's like really high in this aluminum base, and uh, and that will basically kind of kill off that will do the job most of those glands yeah it should do the job i mean sometimes you know there's 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 other there's underlying illnesses like um menopause (laughs) um tuberculosis like some sort forms of cancer um and and you know those i think people tend to know but sweating can be can be one indicator so if you're super sweaty um, especially at night, and if you recognize that pattern of like you you're you're sweating, 
you know, only at night for no apparent reason, then you should see a doctor. Well, Heidi, as always, and by the way, we didn't get into smelly sweat as opposed to not smelly sweat. I think that's another column, though, Heidi. Uh, Take a shower, dude. (laughs) Take a shower, dude. Take another one. (laughs) I hear you. Heidi Mitchell, (laughs) The Wall Street Journal, The Burning Question column. What makes some people sweat more than others? Heidi, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we like to do, well, every kind of storytelling imaginable. And thanks so much for joining us more after these messages. Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite series called Come Together, where we bring you the stories of unlikely people and communities coming together to solve problems. And today, it's a white Republican and Wall Street titan from Richmond, Virginia, named Stanley Druckenmiller, who's a billionaire, and someone who's not a billionaire. He's black, a Democrat education reformer from New York City, named Jeffrey Canada. So why are these guys hanging out together? Before we tell you, we bring you their individual life stories as they told them in a joint appearance at the University of Southern California. And so we start with Stan and his early life. And like most folks in finance, he wasn't dreaming about it as a kid. He was actually an English major in college until he realized he loved economics and then decided to go to the University of Michigan to pursue a graduate degree in econ, at least that was the plan. I lasted a semester and a half, and I, I dropped out, went to work construction for six months, and then uh, my first marriage, which was a practice marriage, in at 22, <laughs> in at 22, out at 23. Don't get married at 22, okay? Um, it was my first great cutting my losses, okay? Oh, actually, she cut them, not me. Um, we, we have her here. <laughs> The marriage did help in one way, though. Her stepfather got him a job at Pittsburgh National Bank, and he was on his way in finance. But how did he get to starting his own investment firm? When I was 27, I was director of investments for Pittsburgh National Bank. I was running $6 billion, and I was doing a pretty good job because the show I ran went under, and I had no experience whatsoever, so I said, this is easy. Let's put all our money in oil stocks and defense stocks. If I had been a little older, a little wiser, I would have diversified. It went up a lot, so everybody thought I was a genius. I wasn't a genius, I just didn't know any better. Um, So I go to this dinner in New York. I'm making 43,000 a year, and I give a presentation on the gold, and the guy says, you don't sound like you're from a bank. Why don't you you start a firm? And I said, with what? I'm worth about four grand. And and he says, "Um, well, I'll pay you $10,000 a month to talk to you. So I started Duquesne Capital, and he said, you can raise money. Well, I'm such a good salesman. After a year and a half, I'd raised $900,000. So that's what I started with, 
$900,000. Two years later, the guy that paid me $10,000 a month to talk to me, I woke up one morning and he was going to jail. Um, he had some scheme and it cost Chase Bank $256 million. By then, I was up to a grand total of $7 million with a 1% fee. For those of you who went to the wrong school, I know all USC people can do the math. I had 70,000 a year in revenues, and my overhead was 160, and I was in deep, you know what. Stan's giving himself a hard time here, but it's no joke to raise $900,000 at 28 years old. And his hedge fund grew to $12 billion under management by the time he retired in 2010. And the moderator of the event then asked Stan about the returns he generated for his investors. What is a typical annual return for a hedge fund these days? Like, what's a good hedge fund return? Right. Yeah. I'd say people are pretty happy and pretty proud. I'd say 12%. 12% a year. 12% a year. So over the course of 30 years that you ran your fund, what was your average annual return? 30.4, but who's counting? <laughs> And, and um, you know, they're up and, up and downs, particularly in hedge funds, because you make big bets. How many down years? Zero. Zero. Zero down years. How did Stan generate this crazy return? Here he is on his rather unique investment philosophy. Well, my idea of risk control is a little non-conventional. I like putting all my eggs in one basket and then watching the basket very carefully. I think, uh, I don't know what they teach at Marshall, but at most business schools they teach, I think, a lot of nonsense called risk-adjusted return and diversification. As a money manager, if, if you look at a normal portfolio, most people will make 70, 80% of money that year on two or three ideas, even though they'll have 30 or 40 things in their portfolio. My concept was to put into those two or three ideas that I had the most conviction in. I was also lucky to travel across asset classes, so I traded commodities, currencies, bonds, and equities, and it gave me the discipline. If I didn't have a good idea in equities, I was happy to have no equities, or the same thing with bonds. So when you have a quiver with a bunch of arrows in it, you can usually find something to put a lot of money into. The only other thing I'd say is too many investors look at the present. The present is always, is already in the price. You have to think out of the box and sort of visualize 18 to 24 months from now what the world is going to be and what securities might trade at. You know, what a company's been earning, is it doesn't mean anything. What you have to look at is what people think what a company's earning, what people think it's going to earn, and if you can see something two years, it's going to be entirely different than the conventional wisdom. That's how you make money. My first boss used to say the obvious is obviously wrong. If you invest in conventional wisdom, you're going to lose your butt. And that's not easy to do, and Stanley, let's just say that's deeply heretical, actually, what he's saying. Don't diversify and stick your eggs in just one basket or two. And that's how he did what he did. That's how he generated those returns. And we're glad to take these kinds of stories and bring them your way. Our Come Together series will continue after a few messages from our commercial sponsors. We're going to hear more from Stanley 
And then we're going to hear from this amazing man, Jeffrey Canada, whose life I've been following personally for many, many years, having grown up in northern New Jersey and seen what he's done with one little school with some billionaire's money and some rich Jewish and WASP benefactors, white people helping this black Democrat say, these public schools aren't working anymore. I want to start my own. I got this idea. And it's called the Harlem Children's Zone. And go there. If you're ever in New York City, go up to Harlem and visit what Mr. Canada's done up there. And you'll know that school choice for kids is not just a 21st century civil right. It's a basic liberty. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Stanley and Jeffrey coming together. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we're back with our Come Together feature on investors Stan Druckenmiller and education reformer Jeffrey Canada. Stan's investment returns of over 30% annually made him a billionaire. Forbes lists his net worth today at $4.7 billion, but it would be much higher if he didn't give so much of it away already. Just take the year 2008. He made $250 million that year, and the very next year, he was listed as the most generous person in the United States, giving away almost Three times that, $700 million he gave away in a single year. By the way, you don't hear that in the news very often, folks. The generosity of the people who make the great wealth, the so-called 1%, and what they do with that money. Well, here's Stan on why he gives away so much. Well, the first reason I give is because I can. Um, So... I don't know where it came from. I was given a gift. I'm, I, I'm good with compounding money. Um, I'm a competitive person. I got an ego problem. I like winning. I like beating somebody at something. But it really doesn't give you that much satisfaction. Um, it is a great irony to me that my wife and I get honored when we go places for giving and people think you're nice people. I don't do it to be a nice person. First of all, it's a privilege and it's fun when you have this much money and there's so many things out there to be able to give it and shape things and direct things I mean it is it is really a source of great pleasure and satisfaction and uh, you know to be able to meet people like Jeff and he's in the trenches I mean what he does compared to I do it's it's not even close but to be able to fund them and maybe make a difference through their efforts and still what I do for a living because I love what I do you know, it's, it's, I do it because it's fun to tell you the truth and you can make a difference. Stan continues on the topic of generosity. There's statements out there about guys being greedy or whatever who don't give money away. And I don't really look at that. I think they're stupid. I mean, they have no idea the joy they're missing. And uh, you take a guy like Buffett who is revered around the world Good for him. The man never gave away a penny until he was 70 years old. 
and then he hands it all over to Gates to do. The fun of it is getting in there and watching these great people like Jeff Canada operate and sourcing them and working with them. Just to write a check is not what it's about. Stan has mentioned supporting Jeffrey Canada, who he's sharing the stage with. In 1990, Canada became the president of Harlem's Children's Zone, which declared 24 blocks of Harlem, New York, theirs. They would be there for every single kid in those 24 blocks, from running charter schools they, they can attend to providing services to the traditional public schools that more kids attend, to helping the parents anything and everything that could provide a better future for the families of that particular community. Harlem Children's Zone is now in 100 blocks. Here's Jeffrey as he began his portion of their conversation. People ask why I uh, ended up coming up with this strategy, and uh, Harlem was a place uh, that people used to describe all that's wrong in the black community in America. Uh, They would say, well, you know, Harlem. Uh, If you looked, our kids had the worst outcomes. More of the kids were going to jails and prisons. Less of them were uh, graduating high school. Few kids were going to college. Uh, These young people lived in a community that was literally falling down. Uh, Stan and I would walk around Harlem, and every third building was abandoned. Uh, He he stuck out a little bit more than I did in Harlem. uh, I was kind of scared walking around back then. (laughs) uh, But the thing, it's really unimaginable. Uh, the conditions these young people lived in. And it reminded me of the conditions I grew up in in the South Bronx, where it looked like no one gave a damn, right? You would think anyone who cared would not let kids grow up in places that you could look at and tell this was a terrible neighborhood. Uh, We thought that this was involved more than just trying to get kids an education, that the community uh, was crumbling around them and we had to fix it up, we had to create block association, tenant associations, we had to start with kids at birth and help their parents learn about all of the brain science that was coming out. How do you translate information to people who want to do the best by their kids but no one's ever told them uh, what to do? So uh, we decided that there was no area that we could leave. Uh, If we work with kids until they're four and you send them to a lousy school, guess what happens? All of that hard work goes down the drain. If you work with them through elementary school and send them to a middle school, two years later the kids look like all the other kids who are failing. Even when we sent our kids off to college, they ended up dropping out of college in record numbers. And so we created this pipeline, and the idea was to really stick with these kids through the pipeline, get them through college so they could come in and get jobs. And it was not just education, it's arts and culture and sports and all of the stuff that we think uh, that allows young people to be successful. Now, one of the things that we do is somewhat controversial uh, is that Uh, We insist that college graduation is the goal that we have for our kids. And some people say, well, don't you believe in vocational education? I do. Uh, How about kids joining fire, police, great jobs? I believe in that. But I believe part of the challenge we have in our community is that we have had very low expectations for these kids. And so we believe in college. And I always tell folk, whenever you're faced with an issue like this and you don't know what the right answer is, it's somewhat controversial, I haven't said this in front of Stan, but I tell this in front of all the rest of the country, so I might as well say it here. I tell folks, when you don't know what to do, do what rich people do. 
Right? I know it's controversial. I know it's controversial. I know it's controversial, but, but that's what I tell people, right? It seems to be working for them pretty good, right? So, um, part of my, you know, I have to raise a lot of money in the zone, and Stan and I, even, even though I've tried to spend up all of Stan's money, uh, we still have to raise more money than that. Uh, and uh, I, that means I have to be around a lot of uh, rich people because they have the money. I tried to raise money from poor people. It didn't work. I'm just saying, I'm just saying it didn't work so well. So, uh, but you notice this interesting thing. Uh, the people who have money only have one expectation for their children. Their children are going to college. It's what college they're going to. This one's going to USC. This one's going to go to Notre Dame. Never have I seen people with money who've had three kids and say, okay, you're USC, you're Notre Dame, but you, I think, hairdresser school, right? <laughs> I've never seen it. All of their kids go to college. And I'm looking at my kids and I'm saying, why shouldn't we have the same expectation for these kids? What if you decided that every kid was going to get this message that we value so much, that we think you have so much potential that we're going to treat you as if you're our own kids and make sure you go to college. So we started out with a few kids. Now we have a bunch of kids in college and we think that that is part of the new American dream, that what we're doing in Harlem we think needs to happen all over the country in places where kids have failed. Many people know Jeffrey from his role in the movie Waiting for Superman, which is directed by Davis Guggenheim and followed along several students as they entered a lottery to get into a charter school and prayed that they'd win it, that luck would have it. They could finally go to a good school. Here's Jeffrey on how the title of the movie came to be. Uh, I, at the time that I had said this, we never thought that that was going to be the title of the movie, uh, but I was explaining what it feels like to grow up in a place where only a superhero could save you. Uh, kids growing up where people are murdered, people are killed, where you see violence, domestic violence, and regular violence, where you're afraid to go to school because they're gangs. Uh, you think this neighborhood is so horrible that I need a superhero. And so when I found out there was no such thing as superheroes, I literally started crying. Uh, and I told that story to uh, uh, Davis Guggenheim, and uh, they ended up uh, saying, you know, that should be uh, the name of the movie. Thanks to the dedication of Canada and his team, givers like Stanley Druckenmiller included, many more of these kids no longer wait for Superman. At their Harlem Children's Zones charter schools, over 90% of their economically disadvantaged students graduate from high school. When they started, traditional public schools in Harlem had a graduation rate of 30%. And their charter schools have a college attendance rate of 83%. When they started, Harlem's traditional public schools had a college attendance rate of 13 to 14%. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our Come Together series. Stan and Jeffrey, and that's Stan Druckenmiller, the hedge fund titan, and Jeffrey Canada, the education reformer, and we're talking about the Harlem Children's Zone, one of the great examples of free enterprise at work, a choice at work in education in this country. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we're back with our latest Come Together feature. Investor Stanley Druckenmiller met education reformer Jeffrey Canada through his work with the Robin Hood Foundation, which uses Wall Street-style analyses to determine the most effective charities in New York City and then invest in them. In the next clip, Stan mentions Bowden College, his alma mater, as he tells the story of their first meeting, and this was before Jeffrey's Harlem Children's Zone had expanded to all 100 blocks. I remember that day like it was yesterday, because I was riding at Robin Hood. We used to have our board meetings on site with the grantees, and I was riding up with the executive director, and he said that uh, the guy who ran this place we're going to went to Bowdoin, Jeff said it resonated with me that there were three African-Americans who went to Bowdoin. I, I could give a damn that they went to Bowdoin. What, what, what struck me at the time, because we're talking 1993, is I walked up this set of stairs, there's like four sets of them, and uh, there were four black men. And Robin Hood, we had a lot of not-for-profits, but most of the not-for-profits were run by women. And a big problem in the African-American community in, in, in Harlem is dysfunctional families and there are not a lot of fathers around. And to see four African-American men doing the good fight, I remember I went, I went back, either we didn't have Google back then or I hadn't discovered it yet. You can uh, <laughs> figure out which it might have been. But I went back and, and there was an article on you in Time magazine and specifically, he had a third-degree black belt, and a couple of kids in County Cullen had some drugs or something, and this maniac went into the apartment, and this is back when Harlem was different, <laughs> practically tore down the door and got the kids and the parents, and basically, very tough love, we'll leave it at that. And, uh, you know, it's funny, because they were just four guys and, and Jeff, but. I knew I had a winner. I, I knew I had to back this guy. And you fast forward five or six years ago, he walks in one day and he says, uh, he's got this idea, we're gonna carve out 100 square blocks in Harlem and, and change the community. I said, well, it's great. And then he says, uh, now for the bad news, our, our budget, which is like a million or two million, it's now gonna go to seven million. I said, that's okay, but in, if we do phase three, it's gonna be 64 million. <laughs> and I'm going like, Jesus Christ, and this is, <laughs> this is the late 90s, and I'm already seeing that the tech thing is a problem, and I'm like trying to figure out how to make a profit off everybody else's misery. <laughs> <laughs> And, and now I figure out the misery is about to be mine. But it shows you my belief in this man because there's not another human being I've met, and I'm sure I won't meet one, who I wouldn't have followed. And I said, let's go. But one funny thing, we, we had a board that they weren't really good on the money side. And I said, there's only, there's only one condition. You've got to fire the whole board and make me chairman, and I'll pick a new board. And... Uh, by the way, the seven million didn't go to 64 million, it's 105 million now, and he's still producing great ideas, and I've had some good investments in my time, but this man right here is the best one I ever made. And here's Jeffrey Canada on the beginning of this unlikely friendship. 
we didn't know one another very well. Uh, we uh, had different political views and still. I'm trying to avoid that whole issue, but, <laughs> but you'll probably hear some of that before the night is out. Uh, but the question, the question is uh, for, for, I think, both of us, could we really make a difference? Uh, and, uh, you know, I was a little uh, concerned uh, that uh, someone who did not come from an environment like the one I grew up in, whether or not they were going to stay the course, uh, you have uh, no idea how aggressive the growth has been uh, in the Harlem Children's Zone, and there would have been no way uh, that I could have done it uh, without Stan. Uh, I mean, no one else would have taken a bet like that uh, on an idea. Uh, never assuming anybody would care or hear about it or know anything about it. Uh, and uh, we both uh, love this country, uh, we love our city, uh, and we love those kids in Harlem. Uh, and uh, there was no reason for me to suspect uh, a guy like Stan would love kids from Harlem. You know, it doesn't, in, in my growing up, that was never something that, you know, you would sort of just assume a guy working on Wall Street would care that much for the kids, but you know what? Uh, it's not just his wallet, his home is opened up for our kids. Uh, you know, my, all of my kids know Mr. Stan and they all want to go to Mr. Stan's house and uh, this I idea, to Mr. Stan's right? Because I, I, there are a lot of people want to go to Mr. Stan's house. As he would say, which one? Uh, the kids, I get a kick out of it because when the kids come, they always ask me, Mr. Canada, this your house? I'm like, no, this is not my house. <laughs> uh, my house does not look like this. But you know, but you know what? If you if you want kids to really understand the promise of them, kids who kids who have not a clue what it means, right, uh, to really make it because they've not seen that vision, uh, they've not been to places where everybody is striving to uh, make it a better world. Uh, I think the exposure uh, that Stan and my other board members have given these kids helps change their lives. And indeed it does. Jeffrey and Stan have both talked about their fundraising efforts together. Here's Jeffrey on his conversations with potential donors and really all of us about seeing the bigger picture of what something really costs. People say, how much does it cost? You get these kids, you stay with them from birth. to I say it averages about $5,000 a year per child. I could cut the number in half if I counted adults, right? Because we serve a lot of adults. But I don't want to cut the number in half. I want it to be a sticker shock because you know why? I tell folk, the end result of us not doing our work, if you look at the cost of incarceration in our zone, if you come here, I have the map that shows you all of the kids who end up going to jail. Uh, in New York State, it's $60,000 a year. You know what it is in the city of New York? It's $147,000 a year to incarcerate someone. So someone is arguing with me about the $5,000. You know what I have to do for $5,000? I have to get those kids on grade level. I have to keep them on grade level. I have to get them graduate high school. I have to get them into college. They have to be healthy. They have to be, uh, uh, eat well. They have to uh, exercise. You know what you get for the $147,000? Do you get people who can have jobs? No. You get people who take care of their families? No. You get people who come out better citizens and they go, you get nothing and everybody is totally happy paying that price. There's no one yelling, why are we paying all of that money to lock someone up? So here we've created in our country 
uh, a system that is totally scalable on one end. I shouldn't have to tell you that in California. I think you all know what's happening with the prison population here. And people are arguing about the pennies that we're spending on these kids trying to save their lives. My goodness, you can't hear a better articulation of public policy and common sense from Jeffrey Canada. And that sticker shock, my goodness, I didn't realize that. 147000 per year to incarcerate someone in New York City. And it's Rikers Island, if you've ever seen the place. Oh, my goodness. What a waste. What a waste. And in New York State itself, sixty k per year. When we come back, you're going to hear more from these two remarkable men, these two unlikely friends. This is a movie, folks. I mean, it's a movie. There are so many stories that we come across here on Our American Stories that are just so beautiful. You don't hear them anywhere else, but you hear them here. And when we come back, the last chapter in this remarkable friendship, our Come, to, our come Together series continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of our Come Together feature on the unlikely duo of Stanley Druckenmiller and Jeffrey Canada. And in this last segment, we're going to dive into Stan's other passion that you might not expect. And near near the end of this, you'll hear from Jeffrey Canada, who's joined his friend in this cause, too. The cause? The reform of the federal government's big entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare. Here's Stan on the origins of this problem that he's trying to solve. When World War II ended, a lot of people came back to the United States, and I guess abstinence, you know what that does. Um, (laughs) There there was a whole lot of something going on that was making babies for a while. And and if you look at the next 20 years, the birth rate basically averaged about 3.0 children per woman and, and peaked in 1957 at 3.7 and that has dropped to two today to put that in perspective we have a hundred more a hundred million more people in america today than we had in 1957 but they were they made more babies in 1957 than we'll make in 2013. the consequence of this is pretty dire from an economic sense because 1947 you add 65 years is 2012 For the next 22 years, 11,000 seniors are going to be added to those entitlement payrolls every day. Every day. In 2030, I know we're in California, but how many of you have been to Florida? Okay, in 2030, the average population in the United States 
is going to be older than the average population in Florida now. Kind of an ugly sight if you've been to Florida. <laughs> you, know, you know, you see the strollers today? You're going to see walkers in 2030. They're going to be everywhere. And this is a problem because of how these entitlement programs are funded. Every worker pays a 12.6% payroll tax. It's supposed to be locked away and dedicated to funding our own Social Security and Medicare benefits when we retire. But in reality, it's going to pay for current retirees all that money. This charade could potentially work if the inputs and outputs were balanced, but they're not. There used to be 41 workers for every one beneficiary back in 1945, but today it's 2.9 workers per beneficiary, and it's not enough. And it's projected to get a lot worse, going down to one worker per beneficiary. Another factor is that Americans are living much longer, which is a good thing, but it also means that seniors have paid less into the programs than what's needed to provide for their longer retirements. The average life expectancy has gone from less than 62 years old when Social Security was founded to almost 79 years old today, 17 years longer, but without any substantive changes to the programs to account for this. And this whole unsustainable structure has created a massive debt. Here's Stan. You have all these scaremongers running around talking about $17 trillion in debt. If you did the accounting that they do for any company in America, except for maybe Enron and Fannie and Freddie, a few, <laughs> a few years ago, the debt today is not $17 trillion, it's $205 trillion. All I've done here is take that money that's off balance sheet, those payments that are promised to... to me, you, and Jeff, when, when we come of age, and put it on the balance sheet, and therein lies the problem. And guess who's going to pay for that? The young people. So this money that my generation has been getting, this transfer that's been going on for 30 or 40 years, we are actually, because we've had this great lobbying arm called the AARP, we are actually going to be ahead of the game. We're going to get $327,000 more in benefits than we put in but the unborn, my great-great-grandchildren, great I'm not too worried about them, by the way. <laughs> Talking about mine. I'm um, worried about mine. <laughs> His are going to be okay. They're going to be net payers of 420000 So when you hear President Obama say, we got to do something fair and balanced, and we don't want to do this on the back of seniors, how can they look you in this straight face when there's a $700,000 inequity between today's seniors versus future seniors. And in the meantime, the Republicans on their side, they're talking about all these great cuts they're doing. They're not touching entitlements. And this is where the money is. As I said earlier, they're cutting NIH grants, they're cutting Head Start, they're cutting food stamps. The only thing that's not being touched is the only place there's any real money, which is entitlements. And it's so true. Stan continues on how this directly relates to him. Now, let's just take myself, for example. In five years, I'm going to start getting $3,500 a month in Social Security. Okay? Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And the $3,500 a month is going to come out of programs that be going to education, to his kids. Ridiculous. And if you think... The fact that that's probably more money than I put in. And then give you, let me give you another statistic. If you are wealthy in this country, your life expectancy is five more years than if you're poor or middle class. 
So I'm going to also collect five more years more than, than the rest of I society. I want my money. I want the Atari. But, but <laughs> I've asked these guys in the Washington, why don't you at least means test Social Security and Medicaid? Oh, once you start down that path, that's like going from marijuana to heroin. Yeah, you know. <laughs> no, it, it's the same argument. If you smoke a joint, you're going to become a heroin addict. You know, if you means test Stan Druckenmiller's Social Security, the whole thing's going to break down and we're going to rip old people off. And now let's hear from Jeffrey Canada, the head of Harlem Children's Zone, on why an education reformer like himself is involved in the seemingly completely different public policy fight. I think people will uh, wonder why a guy who spends all of his time trying to help poor children in Harlem uh, wants to run around the country and talk about this issue of uh, generational theft. And and for me, it's pretty straightforward. Um, My kids, who have literally grown up under some of the toughest circumstances that kids face in this country, Uh, have bought into the American dream. I mean, we've said that you're joining a system that is fair, right? Uh, You're going to work, you're going to pay taxes, you're going to do it all the right way, you're going to work hard, and in the end, uh, you're going to be able to uh, receive from this country what we consider the American dream. And when I saw uh, the uh, figures that Stan presented about what's going to happen, I said that uh, essentially, uh, we've told our kids a lie. Uh, we've just told them a lie. We told them this thing was going to be fair, it's going to be equitable, and yet my generation is literally picking their pockets. And I just, these kids have nothing. They have nothing. Their families have no money. They have no support in their homes. And for us to be taking from them to me, I think is unconscionable. And finally, here's Dan Druckenmiller with his closing message to the USC students in the audience and across America. I implore you, there's 70 million of you, you have the power, you're getting your butt kicked by the AARP, you're just sitting by idly while they take advantage of you. I've given up on Washington. I make a lot of money. You think I have political access? I can't move Washington on this because their job is to get reelected and they know old people vote and you don't. So it has to be up to you. That's why I'm going around the country trying to get you guys stirred up so you'll act, and I implore you to act. I really appreciate your coming out tonight, and thank you. And by the way, so much of that money that goes to entitlements, well, that, all that money that would go to other programs, from our military straight through to our education uh, establishment, and that is the, all the different choices we could have, that money is just going to dry up. It's all going to transfers to old people, young to old. One of the great thefts. Uh, that we're going to be digging into over over time. And certainly we're going to try and get Stan on this show to drill down. He's given some of the best talks on this subject that I've ever seen. And I think this is where he's going to park it for the rest of his life. And again, there's no interest for him. His kids are fine. Again, our 1%, our guys like this, these are the only guys that can get it done either. Stan can ultimately bankroll some campaigns. And who's he doing it for? He's just doing it for the next generation because somebody's got to do it. Another great story here on Our American Stories, our Come Together series. My goodness, we've had some great ones. We had one with a head of Coke Industries, the general counsel there, and a woman who derided the 1%. And they met each other on a stage. She had lost uh, some limbs to a, to a terrible, terrible shooting. 
She was at a, in the middle of a robbery and ended up losing, losing limbs. She was at an award ceremony. She got her award. And then Mark Holdren got his from Coke Industries. They started to talk. And it turns out she had some problems collecting insurance on her limbs. The insurance company was just giving her the runaround. And the next thing you know, this guy from Coke Industries is helping her. And he's fighting the fight with the insurance companies, and they wouldn't budge. And one day, he and his wife show up at this lady's house with two prosthetic limbs that cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And he just did it because, well, he could. And it was the right thing to do. And they are fast friends. And these things happen every day in this great country. We can agree to disagree about politics. But my goodness, the degree to which we do things together is remarkable here in this great country. We love the Coming Together series. We also uh, featured Foster Freeze and what he did right after some tornadoes in Wisconsin. And he just, he just basically went back to his old hometown and just started writing checks to people. $10,000 here, $1,000 here. And why? Because he could and because it was the right thing to do. And there he was with people who lived very differently than him. But in the end, well, that's what we do here in America. We work together. We come together. This is our American story, Stanley Druckenmiller's story, Jeffrey Canada's story, here on Our American Stories.